Welcome to another episode of the Market Makers in Middle East and Africa podcast. I am your host Abrar Hussain. Today I have a very special guest who flew in from Copenhagen, uh Martin Roll. Martin is a senior advisor to Fortune 500 companies, family offices, family uh businesses, Asian firms and he's also a distinguished fellow at INSEAD. Martin, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. Good to yeah. be here. Thank you. Martin very interesting profile and you are a global business strategist advising fortune 500 companies and you are also a leading expert advising family businesses and family offices tell us about yourself i grew up in denmark i went into advertising before that thought i was becoming a broadcast journalist i think i could easily have ended up with the with the bbc but i took the uh, the advertising route and i thought that marketing were supposed to be the rest of uh, what i was doing i was sent to inset 1999 for an mba and that completely changed the track so i went to asia settled in singapore started to help first of all the asian firms to rise to build the brands later went into strategy transformation and that morphed me almost into family firms and uh, family offices so i've had a bit of a portfolio career getting older and then looking back at kind of a marketing streak transformation and strategy and then family business and family office on a on a global level so i've been very privileged to work with so many clients around the world over the years perfect now let's start with fortune 500 companies when you apply you know or when you advise them what principles you apply defining their strategy building their brand <clears throat> and how you make sure that it aligns with their branding and marketing and the values that they have I think first of all when you when you work with big companies or small companies you need to understand where they're coming from. I think you need to bridge past, present and future. You need to understand who they are. You need to find into the DNA of the company, the DNA of the brand, which is my old world of branding. Because once you understand the legacy, once you understand the DNA, once you understand what is the inner burning flame in the company, then it's much much easier to devise strategy. I mean strategy can easily become chasing after tomorrow, chasing after innovation, trying to change for the sake of changing, but I think good strategy sometimes is a bit of adjustment along the road, sometimes revolution, sometimes upheaval, and that's what I try to apply to strategy. You want you want the direction to be authentic. You want the direction to be real. There's so much happening in this world, and if you're going to do a good strategy, you need to make sure that it is it is really grounded in the values grounded in the journey and it's not necessarily just an overnight flick mm-hmm. now apart from a strategy the digital transformation plays a important role when you do kind of any transformation how do you see digital transformation changing the companies big or small and what opportunities or challenges it present when you do a kind of a digital transformation which ties to the bigger strategy sometimes you walk into a digital transformation where digital is a new word to the organization so then you have some pretty basics uh, to kind of correct in terms of digital is not only facebook digital is not only a call center digital is not only data it is much more than that so that could be one side of it often digital transformation starts with a very partial part of the organization it could be in the customer interfacing part of it it could be in supply chain it could be in procurement but sooner or later digital transformation becomes much more strategy and it morphs into corporate strategy and what i try to do is not to look at digital transformation as being a silo 
but being something which is much more relate to the future journey of the company. So digital transformation almost becomes much more than digital transformation. So those tools that are available and we get new tools, we get new methodologies, new learnings uh, day by day because digital is moving so fast. I think that has a huge impact on the, on companies. So I always try to lift up digital transformation. Yes, there, must, there, there may be something to fix overnight, but in the long term, it's very much about the corporate strategy. So I think those two things are interlining maybe digital is the excuse to get started. So that's mm-hmm. a good thing. So I think it's creating a lot of change beyond digital in itself. Mm-hmm. Now, large transformations, when it comes to changing the, you know, the company's approach, the strategy, new regions. So tell us a very large transformation where you are part of it or you drive it and what you learn from it and how it shaped your thinking and the way you advise big businesses or the family offices? You can be quite impatient when you work with big organizations and there is something called bureaucracy. There's something called layer, span of command, power distance, not invented here. I'm not the CEO. I sit in my business unit, why should we change? So resistance to change is everywhere. And what fascinates me and what I really work like, what I like working with is to work with all the people in organization to, to see what creates that change in the organization. What are the levers you need to drive in order for people to suddenly, not because you push them. I think in this day and age, you cannot push people to go anywhere. You need people to follow you. So how do you rig that transformation so even a large organization, a large organization, mind you, could be hundreds of thousands of people in the same organization? I think that's quite fascinating to see. So that's a big portion of psychology. It's a big portion of the right messages from the C-suite, from the leaders, from the governors, from the tribe leaders across the organization. If you get that right, it's a bit like a super tanker. It doesn't move overnight, but then once you get into motion, you see these uh, transformations taking place. And that that's fascinating to see that. In the mm-hmm. early part of it, you don't see much. You're doing all the groundwork, and then suddenly things things are starting to move. And that, that's fascinating to see. Mm-hmm. Now, Martin, coming to family businesses, and you are a global expert in advising family businesses and family offices, they're very interesting, and it's a very different dynamics than a Fortune 500 company. Tell us more about the family businesses, and I, I know that you have been advising family businesses across the globe, in Asia, in Middle East, in Europe. So tell us how they are different and how they differ from region to region and what kind of role they play in driving the economy or forming a good part of the GDP. I mean, first of all, family businesses are a large part of the global economy. It's around 80% of the global firms. Mm-hmm. It's about 75 of GDP. Mm-hmm. It's about 65 to 70% of the jobs created. So family firms spanning from mom and pop shops to large conglomerates all over the world are the backbone of the global world. Most people mm-hmm. don't see it that way, but that, that's what it is. What is different with family firms is that it's business with emotions. It's business with the heart because there are people behind it. They are not listed necessarily fully on the stock exchange. They're not institutionally owned. And that means there are business families behind them. And where you see modern entrepreneurs these days that are raising capital to find a company and to to kind of scale it, entrepreneurs very often build to exit, whereas family firms, they build to impact. 
So the, the long-term notion of a family firm is often that, that we're going to be here for the next 50, 100 or 200 years because family firms don't sell. With that, of course, comes a lot of tricks of the trade. Succession, professionalization, keeping that entrepreneurship, keeping the burning flame running all the time. So there are a lot of challenges keeping family businesses alive over generations. But once you get it right, they could be super, super powerful. And that, that's really what fascinates me, working with them. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that one of the challenges can be the succession and the dynamics, but if you get it right, there are a lot of opportunities. And I, I read that you have advised 650 next generation leaders. And as you mentioned, I think one of the challenge is how the family businesses or the first generation of entrepreneurs can transfer that skills or train the next generation of leaders. How family businesses can overcome this challenge and while advising or preparing this next generation of leader, what can be done and what are the best advice uh, that you give to the family businesses? It's It's a process that takes time because you can't force next generation into a family firm. Mind you that these are younger people between 18 and in the 40s or 50s. Sometimes you can have a certain age before you become a next gen and maybe the senior generation is ready to step aside. But how do you make sure that that entrepreneurship keeps on forever? That's by educating your kids. You start very early. You start to inform them what the family is doing, why we are family and business. And then you're going to make sure that the kids are forming their own opinions, their own perspectives. And maybe when time is right, you invite them in to participate. But you cannot force next into a family firm. You need to make sure they have a proper choice. In the past, succession used to have one protagonist, which tend to be the senior generation. In this day and age, I think there are two protagonists, which are the senior generation, but also the younger generation. And that's an equal partnership. So in order for the next gens to go in, you need to make sure that they're capable, well-educated, motivated, and the timing is right. And that's one of the most critical things for a family firm, that is to keep the succession up and running, which is complicated, but if you do it right, it can also it can run quite, uh, quite beautifully. Mm-hmm. Now, we were talking, Martin, which was quite interesting that, and I, I, I saw this in the ATNCR as well, that most of the high net worth individuals or family businesses disappear or start dwindling <clears throat> after second generation or third generation why that happens and how companies can safeguard. And I, you mentioned some of very good, interesting kind of perspectives. You know, tell us about those and how kind of they sustain that business generation over generation. So that is, that's a very interesting topic, you know, Martin. Take us through that. Only 3 to 5% of the global family firms survive after the third generation. There's a wonderful Chinese proverb, first generation builds, second one manages, third one terminates it. And that means that the first one is very entrepreneurial because that is the founder. Second one manages it because the kids' cousins would be very close to that founder. But in the third generation, you become a little more distant. So that's important to kind of carry on the the burning flame because they maybe they weren't capable, maybe they weren't ready and all of that. What happens in that process is the reason why you can sustain for very long term is that you start to professionalize. You start to put in board in place, you try to put KPIs in place, you have processes, you make the business ready for not only being run by family members or with family involvement. Often you will get a professional CEO, you simply find the right person for the job, where family members will be more stewards. So you become an owner, you sit on the board, you caretake long-term strategy, but you hire the right people for the job. So you make sure that 
the business becomes almost like business family independent, mm. but owned and led and guided by the business family. That's very important. And that does not rule out a daughter or a son or a cousin or a brother to run the business or be heavily involved in it. But that's one way to safeguard that you is based on quality, that you're based on the best person for the job. And once you have been through a couple of successions, you know the tricks of the trade. You know how emotionally conflicted you might have been. You saw some of the fallouts. You knew how to handle conflicts. You have seen it live. So when you see some of those family firms that have survived over the very long term, they have been through many, many successions. One of the very old family firms is a Japanese bed and breakfast called Hushi Ryukan, based out of uh, northwest out of uh, out of Tokyo, based northwest out of Tokyo. And they are running now in the 46th generation, based, oh, wow. then were founded in 719. So if you get it right over time, you can sustain for a long time. Mm-hmm. There is a organization based out of Paris called the Hinochians. They have more than 80, 90 members. They only have two membership criteria. Mm-hmm. Number one, you're more than 200 years old as a company. Mm-hmm. Secondly, family involvement. You have to be family owned and you need to have family involved in the business. Only two criteria. Mm-hmm. Wow. And in the current circumstances, some of the, I think you were talking about another company, Global LVMH, and how they are managing this succession in a good way. Tell us a bit more about this. It will be, I think, a good for the listener to listen about it, how they can manage the succession, how they can prepare next generation for leading the businesses. Bernardo, the owner of LVMH, one of the richest families in the world, but also one of the most well-run conglomerates in the world, LVMH, with some 160, 180 different brands under its helm, have done extremely well. He has five kids from two marriages. All the five kids are currently involved in the firm. They have been very well educated. They have been trained. They have been sent to different business units, different brands to run them. And I would say that he probably have five kids that are very capable of one day becoming a CEO. Bannano is getting older and he has to select the new owners and the new managers in the, in the years to come. And it's going to be super uh, interesting to see how he's going to select that because that's going to be where LVMH moves into the second generation. So this is probably the biggest succession project that we, that we currently are, are looking at in the world. It is huge when it comes to it. Oh, oh that's very interesting. Martin, coming to, you know, when you advise C-suit holders, family businesses, or Fortune 500 companies, I think leadership is a very important thing. How you help on the leadership part and how you kind of advise them to become better leaders, how you approach that? Leaders are under a lot of pressure. And I think when I speak to them, when I mentor them and coach them, I try to find out uh, who you are. I try to find out what are your challenges. I try to get into your room to get to know you, but also trying to find out what is the the job that you have at hand? What type of company are you at? What are the challenges you're facing? What are your concerns? What are your weaknesses? And become somehow a sparing partner to to the leaders that I'm working with, which is fascinating because you you cannot standardize leadership because all leaders... I mean, they were somewhere and sometimes stumbled into a leadership role. Sometimes they grew with it. Sometimes they're very senior. But all leaders need someone to talk to, someone to help them to, uh, to guide for the future. So I really want to find into the, the inner self of the leader and then place them in a job, in a position 
So they become very confident in terms of, of moving the organizations, the institutions forward. Mm. Coming to emerging markets, specifically Middle East, Africa, and, and the emerging markets. And here we see that, you know, family businesses are kind of core of the economy and we have very well-run family businesses. What they can do to drive success and growth and become kind of global brands and, you know, have more success? Make sure that you, um, that you are professionally run. Make sure that you have governance structures in place. Make sure you got the right KPIs. Make sure you got the right people. Make sure that somehow you are institutionalized so you're fit for purpose and you're fit for the future. So often you can do a lot of house cleaning. Often you can look internally and say, are we ready for the future? Are we, do we have a strategy which is fit for purpose? I see that as a, as a very important part. The world is very flat today. Borders are open. You can export everywhere, but you also have competitors coming in. So with that comes global competition. And you see competition coming from all corners. So it's kind of John F. Kennedy, former American president, said it's time to repair the roof when the sun is shining. And that sometimes can be the hard part because things are maybe working well right now, but what about a rainy day? So look internally, try to see how you can enhance the processes. This region is ripe for success. It is huge, a lot of resources, a lot of landmass, and a lot of talent, a lot of people. So I think uh, the, the future of the economy is bright, but, but obviously companies need to step up to make sure that they are, they are picked into the, to the global landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned a very good thing about global competitiveness. And I saw that you help some of the companies in India and China with their business models to compete at a global scale. Tell us about those and how you kind of navigate it and how these companies, you know, benefit from it. The engine and the and the Chinese uh, firms are great. There are a lot of good stuff coming out of India. There are a lot of uh, good products and services out of China. What they need to learn somehow is to build market positions because people today do not buy technology. You don't buy a company, you buy brands. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of brands out there. So if you're going to be another brand from India, you're going to be another brand from China, what is it that I'm buying? And often that comes with the notion of identity, comes with the notion of values, comes with the notion of what makes you different. But sometimes it also comes with the notion made in China, made in India. And you're going to make that to your advantage because sometimes would people trust your quality, would they trust your service delivery and so forth. So I would look at your market expansion and your globalization if you're a Chinese or an Indian company through the lenses of a brand. So how are you going to compete with all the brands out there? Because there are a lot of choices in this world and that's what they need to look at. Mm-hmm. They have a huge advantage, which is also eroding, but they are low cost. So they have a cost point, which generally is, is lower than the average. And that's obviously a huge advantage, but in the long run, low cost, low price in itself is not necessarily going to make the cut. You're going to build that margin where people are buying you for something else. They buy you because you're a brand. They buy you because you help them to form their own identity, whether that's from a quality point of view, whether it's from a perception point of view, whether it's from a service delivery point of view, it could be kind of any point of view, but you're going to stand for something. And that's important here because competition is right out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Martin, coming to industry-specific discussion, I mean, retail and luxury, you know, kind of forms a big part of economy. By the same time, they have a lot of challenges. COVID was one of them. Digital age and fast-moving pace of, you know, businesses, another one. How retail and luxury companies can stay relevant and how they can, you know, drive the growth in this age? A lot of them need to need to digitalize. Obviously, retail... 
used to be you walk into a shop, the same with luxury, in particular luxury, which is I need to touch the goods, I need to have the service in the store and all that. So how can you bring that into the to the digital world? End-to-end customer journeys is a trick here. So how can you marry what is very good about the digital journey, meeting customers online, greeting them before you know them, telling them what you're all about, until maybe you have a store interface or you may not have a store interface altogether. And that is, for example, what the luxury industry is currently looking at. How do you bring the, I would say, a very traditional industry where you really have that kind of meet and greet at the store level, how do you bring that into the to the to the digital age as well? So I think they can benefit immensely from that. We saw during COVID how e-commerce all over the world for the necessity of it really exploded. And I think a lot of companies learned from that. A lot of that stayed that people didn't go to the physical store outlet anymore. So the retail sector is also under a lot of pressure to move into the to the digital universe. But I think with that is also opportunity when it comes to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Martin, private equity and venture capital are a big driver of innovation and growth across the globe. Now, you advise a lot of private equity firms as well. How you advise them to make right investments on their investment strategies and all, and my second question would be when we're talking about family businesses family offices how they can kind of benefit from private equity capital or from you know the vc capital i think to the, to take the latter first i think they can i mean family offices family firms are often tell them what if you sold to a to a pe firm what would they do they would do a 90 day plan they will professionalize you they will come up with a fantastic strategy and most importantly they execute so I often ask family firms and family officers, are you the right owner of your operating assets? What if they were sold to a PE firm? Would they do something better than you did? If they do that, you better get to work. So I think that private sector can learn a lot from those firms because they are highly professionalized. They've done a lot of deals. They have learned from their mistakes, so you can learn a lot. On the other side, you have to invest in the right businesses. And often that's about, obviously, investing in the right multiples, right industries and all of that. But most importantly, it's about finding the right people. If you don't have the right people at the helm, you change the leadership. One of the key reasons why a company that comes into a fund or change ownership is because you you have a very thorough look on the management team. You're really going to find out, do we, have, do we have the right people at the top of the company? And of course, later throughout the organization, that's the most important thing. There's a battle for the right talent, for the, for the right leaders, and that's what the PE firms and the VC firms, for that matter, needs to look at. Mm-hmm. Martin, going back to the family businesses, and you mentioned that the biggest difference that comes you know, from one generation to another, or maybe third generation, is that lack of entrepreneurial spirit. right? How companies can generate that entrepreneurial spirit or that culture of entrepreneurship, be it family business or big companies? So how you know this culture can be developed? It's very important to make sure that your family firm keeps being innovative and entrepreneurial. And one way to do that is to give way to the next generation. So often a very strong entrepreneurial founder or any generation would find it very hard to step aside and give some leeway to the younger generation. But when you start to renew in the next gens, obviously that's also about questioning what happened yesterday. And with that comes a bit of friction, conflict, tension, but you're also going to show that the next gen has something to offer. So that interchange between multiple generations is the most dynamic thing in a, in a family firm. But of course, you're going to pass down the values, the DNA, where we are coming from. 
But just because you were successful yesterday, it doesn't mean that you are going to be successful tomorrow. So you're going to have you're going to have some leeway internally for for changing what the company is all about. Mm-hmm. And the next question is on the innovation part, right? I mean, companies or business units has to be innovative to stay relevant. At the same time, see what's coming. You know what? How they can compete? Global competitiveness. How this culture of innovation can be embedded to the culture of a company, and how you know we can drive it from bottom up and top down. I think it's about culture, because when you think about innovation, the innovation toolbox is wide and is very deep. There's so much going on out there. Currently, we are talking about AI. We spoke about supply chain, data has been the big thing, and tomorrow there's going to be another thing. The world is changing dramatically with technology. The question is, what are we going to embed in the company? Which which type of innovation? Are we going to scratch the surface? Are we going to go much more revolutionary? So what you need to do, you need to go back to the DNA of the company, and you need to look at the culture in the company. What is it that is needed? You can innovate too much. Of course, you need to delight your customers. You need, you need to look at your price points. But when it comes to innovation... You shouldn't do too much of it either. You need to make sure that it fits with the DNA because otherwise you will get completely overwhelmed. So look at the culture, what is needed internally, what is needed in terms of your stakeholders, and then you bring that in. Mm -hmm. Because you can easily get swayed by all the stuff that is happening out there. And suddenly you might find yourself being sitting between two chairs, jack of all trades and all of that. Ask yourself deep inside, who are we? What do we need in order to be relevant tomorrow? Not to everyone, but to the relevant people. Mm-hmm. Martin, my last question. You have a very interesting role, you know, different regions, different kind of companies, different kind of people. What do you love most about your role? So tell us about that. What kind of excites you? It excites me to work with cultures. I'm, I'm privileged that I have clients around the world. I have roles in academia. And I have a lot of uh, speaking opportunities. That means that I do travel to a lot of countries every year. And when you travel to countries, you meet different people. What excites me is really meeting the cultures of the world and see, first of all, how the world is very similar, but also about all the challenges and opportunities out there. So it's a privilege to be able to work on multiple platforms at the same time and then meeting the world, but also making that little impact. I mean, put that dent in the universe by cross-pollinate what is what is out there. I think that, that's a fantastic role. I really have a lot of joy out of it. Very passionate about what I do. Perfect. Martin, it's a real pleasure to have you and you have shared a lot of things with us and it will be of great you know, use to our listeners. Thank you for coming. My pleasure.